Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 274 and part two of my conversation with Fayetteville State University in North Carolina, percussion and music professor Quentin Millette. But first up, the Armed Forces Bowl. During the editing and recording of last week's episode, I was traveling and working with Marching Mizzou as we were getting ready to perform in the Armed Forces Bowl in Fort Worth, Texas, which our football team was playing against Army. When you play in that game against that squad, you're playing against America. You're supposed to lose, and I'll get to that. This trip included a bus ride for about 14-plus hours from Columbia to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, plus rides to and from the hotel to various places. Because Army does not have a marching band... They have a pep band along with alum members who play with them. We had the chance to march the field on both pregame and halftime, along with playing in the stands and for a pregame pep rally. We also brought Spot the Robot Dog with us as we performed our robot show opener, Mr. Roboto, on the field. The cameras were all over us for that, particularly with ESPN, as they came over when we were getting ready to go on the field for halftime. A couple of the camera guys asked if I was with Mizzou. The correct answer to that is yes. And then asked, you guys have some kind of robot dog? And I pointed him over to the corner of the field where it was set up. And then the cameras were all over spot. The band did great all game. Their energy was up. And they gave the team the energy to keep going, even though it was looking bad throughout the second half. Now, because this was the Armed Forces Bowl... You were inundated with armed forces stuff. This included, among other items, three separate cars or vehicles that were given away to armed forces veterans, a reunion with a service member with his family for the holidays. Those are always great. Two specialized recliners given to other army vets, ads for preventing suicide. Those were kind of grim. A mass induction into the armed forces for all five units. The Military Spouses of the Year. And a shocker, they were all women. And the songs of all of the military armed forces that were played throughout the game. And then the game itself. Army came back and took the lead midway through the fourth quarter on a rare pass for a touchdown. And were up by five. Then Mizzou immediately comes down after not scoring at all in the second half to take the lead with just over a minute left. We had a chance to go up three with a two-point conversion, but our QB overthrew a wide-open receiver in the end zone. So Army came down on the final possession, down one. They got a couple of clutch passes and a bad face mask penalty against us, and it set up a 40-yard field goal for their kicker, who apparently had never made a field goal that far in his career. But as far as I could tell, he had the leg for it. And he kicks the game-winning field goal at the buzzer. And the crowd, specifically on their side of the stadium, went nuts. And it left Mizzou yet again with another disappointing bowl game. And they have not won a bowl since the 2014 Cotton Bowl, which is well before my time here with Marching Mizzou. It was definitely disappointing. And then it was time to head back to campus. Ah, so much talk about me. It's enough. That is enough. 
Let's get to today's guest, Quentin. If you caught part one, and I hope you did, we got to hear from Quentin about his recent PASIC presentation, his job at Fayetteville State, growing up in eastern North Carolina, his sports background, and his undergrad career at both East Carolina University and Howard University. Today, on part two, we'll get to his master's and doctorate years at the University of Georgia under Tim Adams, his very twisted and convoluted path to getting full employment at Fayetteville State, and an extended run through the random ask questions. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on November 2nd and November 4th, 2021, and it begins right now. When you're done, do you, do you go to Georgia right after that? Yes. Yeah, so right afterwards, I actually get married. Um, oh, okay. and, and so my wife and I are, are looking at, you know, where do we go from here? We look at a bunch of institutions and I was kind of interested in staying in the DC area, yeah. but the university of Georgia actually had a PhD program that matched up with her specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had, you know, it, it had a master's program that kind of matched up with mine. And so I was like, okay, well, let's, let's look at the university of Georgia. And so I went down there right after that, yeah. um, which was Un- unbelievable and and stressful at the same time. Uh, my daughter was very very young at that age, mm-hmm. um, and so you know it was like the three of us and you know traveling down to Georgia, you know burning the midnight oil, midnight train to Georgia kind of thing. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, and we had you know stuffed this uh, moving van full that you know I think I can't remember who drove our moving van down, um, but then we were in the car, and, and all I can remember is like I have like my daughter is here in the car seat and this is really not safe. And then we've got like two or three pillows, like right next to it. Like, and then there's the, the TV. Yeah. yeah. And then there's like the cat and the dog and like, we're like stuffed and it's like 2 AM and we're driving down to Georgia. And, um, and it's, it's so, it's such a, such a, a, a memory in in my head right now of, of kind of what this trip was like and what Georgia was like. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, you know, all of the, you know, horror films in the world, like going to Athens. I don't know if you've ever been to Athens. It's, it's really in the middle of nowhere in Georgia. Yeah. Um, and so like, and there's like cows and there's tons of deer. And I, I'm telling my wife from my audition, cause I also drove late at night for that. I'm like, we have to actually go over this like wooden drawbridge. And she's like, there's not a wooden drawbridge. I'm like, I swear there's this wooden drawbridge that we have to cross to get there. And we go there and, you know, it's like this big overpass, of course, you know, but, you know, there's the imagination, of course, you know, fools with you. But, you know, we're doing this trip late at night and we get there and that feels like the University of Georgia experience to me is like this, like we're trying to get on the other end of this, however possible, you know, balancing, you know, our home life with, you know, both of us being, you know, graduate students um, and then trying to also like be present for our daughter who is quite young. It was a, an, an incredible transition to go from Howard to to the University of Georgia. When you start, is is Tim already there? Is his first first year? Okay, um, I, I, it's like I, I could in the time my head in the timeline. I knew it was somewhere. It, you'd be close. Yeah. So he had come in. I was actually in his first class. Like he his audition. Like my group. It was the first group that he auditioned to come in. And mm-hmm. um, all I remember from my audition um, was like we go to the xylophone and like, you know, here I am, you know, I've played some, you know, things that I think are, you know, really impressive. And mm-hmm. he's like, All right. you got Colas. I mean, come on. 
Right. You know, yeah. and I'm like, all right, you know, I can play the xylophone. You realize that I, I play the marimba, right? You know, like, you know, like, that's my mentality. Oh, and uh, I'm sure that, know, I'm like, sure that was treated very, very nicely. You know, oh, yeah, of course, I don't, I don't say that to him, but like, that's, <laughs> I was like, all right, you, so you want me to play this C major pendant scale? Oh, yeah, I can do that. Like, you know, yeah. who, who do you think I am? Someone that started playing percussion in you know, senior year in high school, you know, and and uh, <laughs> so we go and he's like, all right, let's play this together. And here I am, like, I'm thinking, all right, you know, this tempest is going to play, you know, mallets, let's do this fine. You know, I'm going to, I'm really, and, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be dismissive, but sure. somewhere in myself, I, I am dismissive because I'm like, he is a tempest and right. he doesn't, he doesn't do this other side of things. So like, what's he going to try to, is this going to be a touch exercise? Like, what are, what are we going to be doing here? And I'm trying to figure out like, how to learn in this situation. Yeah. So we're playing and he's like, all right, let's play a little faster. Let's play a little faster. And somewhere along, um, between, you know, faster and faster, um, he is like smoking me. Right. Of course. And like, and I can't play, like, I can't even, I'm like, I can't play this fast. Yeah. yeah. He's like, okay, interesting. And like, he goes on to the next thing. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, like, man. Okay. Um, all right. Take you know, a seat, Quentin. <laughs> right. And so, you know, we go in and it was the first of many things that all of a sudden I was like, wow, I did not understand orchestral musicians. Right. I had let someone in undergrad tell me that like, oh, they're just machines or just automatons, yeah, you yeah. know, and like, that's just kind of, you know, that's just, they just like, they just like excerpts, you know, excerpt heads. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I learned from him that being an orchestral musician is just about exploring sound. Right. And the different ways that body mechanics work to create sound. And mm -hmm. like, he's a phenomenal mallet player. I yeah. feel like he's an excellent cymbal player. Mm -hmm. um, he's like, he changed the way that I viewed the bass drum. Yeah. Like, you know, like I get, I get geeked out when like, you know, like, all right, you're playing bass drum on this concert. I'm like, yes. Like, all right, here we go. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're, we're going to do this. And, and, you know, it's, it was such an incredible experience. Um, he is also one of those people that I think has like existed in a number of different spaces. You know, he's won yeah. several symphony jobs. He's won uh, percussion jobs. Uh, but he's also played in like a rock band, you know, he was in the band exotic birds, you know, <laughs> which is, which is really kind of great to see, you know, who he is. And, and that kind of sphere of influences was really, really, really impactful. Yeah. Yeah. As a master student, do you have an assistantship while you're there? No, no. So, um, I auditioned and I got there under the assumption that like, oh yeah, all master students at least, you know, get, get, to get something, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and they were like, oh yeah, you get to pay full out-of-state tuition. Right. And I was like, what do you mean? That, that's, that's not what I wanted. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, there, you know, I finally petitioned someone and I got an out-of-state tuition waiver, but like, it was like, oh gosh, like I've got to like pay for this. And, yeah. um, for, for my DMA, I did get an assistantship. I had, I was half time with, uh, with the band program and then half time with, uh, with the percussion studio. Um, and that was also very rewarding. I got to teach the percussion methods class and um, kind of develop a philosophy there, which has proved very useful <laughs> since. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. I think I've had some other Georgia people on, but tell me a little bit about the facility there. Um, so when I got there, um, the facilities were incredible. Mm -hmm. um, nice, large percussion studio there. Um, and when he got the gig, they got a ton of new equipment. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it was like, we had 
toms out the wazoo. We had congas out the wazoo. We had cymbals out the wazoo. Yeah, yeah. There was tons of drums. That, like it was just, I felt like equipment was everywhere. We had, you know, a lot of those uh, duff drums, you know, um, Dresden style duff drums. And yeah. It, and then in the, before him was uh, Tony McCutcheon. And so the, yeah. we had a ton of marimbas too. Right. So like a lot of five octave marimbas to practice on between there and the large ensemble and upstairs. And like, it was, the facilities were incredible. Um, and, you know, I, I spent several years there. And so I began to feel like that was reality. Right. Like, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is, this is how percussion is done. I bet everyone has kind of updated along these lines in the past several years. Ah. And, you know, <laughs> then, I, then I go and teach, you know, my, my first adjunct gig and I'm like, what, what, what do you mean? This this bell kit is the percussion you know, holding. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, that's right. This is this is reality for a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but facilities were incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. I mean, soundproof practice rooms and, and everything. Loved, loved the facilities there. I've I've talked to a few people who have who have start t- studied with him. Mm-hmm. somewhere or at least have had long scale interactions uh with tim and it i i've i get the sense that uh, there's something about his presence that everyone talks about that's uh and i've heard the word swagger <laughs> put on top of it um not by me others have said that and so i'm curious if that does that meld with your sense of 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 him as a kind of as a presence Yes, I, he definitely has, he definitely has a way of entering a room so that you take notice. Mm. Um, and that is, it's, it's beautiful to see. Yeah. Um, you know, I think he, yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, when you, I think when you look at like, all right, here's this career, it definitely melds with like having an entrance, like you walk into a room and the room is going to recognize that your, your presence is there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he definitely has some swagger. He is so many diverse interests. Like I go in expecting like, all right, you know, here's this guy that, you know, does orchestral music. Right. And he's like totally into contemporary music. Mm. He's like, he's like, yeah, actually like, you know, I, I like this. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we've had people write music. Uh, I, I happen to be there at the same time with uh, Nathan Tingler, and he wrote some pieces for us, you know, where we're like shouting stuff on the stage. Um, our percussion ensemble concerts, like one time we played ionization twice, um, you know, because he wanted the audience to hear it at the beginning and the end, you oh, know. Gosh. And, okay. you know, one one concert we play, like we during all the set changes, he was playing like, you know, an Udu. Um, oh, yeah. while someone else was like reading like newspaper headlines like and so they were all like events and like in in his idea it was like all right you know we're going to do these things and they're going to be like in the art world what they'd say kind of happenings yeah and you know so you have like these happenings that are happening while we're like setting up and then we play the piece and so the audience is like always like oh gosh when's the music when's the, when can i stop paying attention and take a quick mental break right yeah, yeah. and it's like and the idea was like we're, we're going to actually control this space so that you know if you tune out during this, you get this. He's such a complex human being. And, and I think, you know, studying with him, there is, you know, that general swagger when, you know, he walks in the room and you take notice, but also the way that he goes about programming and establishes like, this is how I want things to go um, yeah. and sticks up for that. Um, and then there's a swagger of like, you know, him in lessons, you know, and he's, you don't get that good without 
knowing how to get that good, you know, right. exactly. <laughs> and that's, and that's the standard, you know, and, right. and so that, that is intense. I think, you know, both, you know, mentally, I think as a graduate student playing, you know, Peter's advanced one for, you know, a month, yeah. uh, you know, is like, gosh, like I thought I was playing it the first week and yet, you know, it's still not up to standard. And, you know, I, I later learned that at least among, you know, my cohort, that was just kind of standard fare, mm-hmm. you know, and I think there's probably also some kind of, you know, <laughs> the mental aspect of you don't finish pieces. Pieces yeah. are a process. Right. You know, and it's like, oh, I get it. I get it. I was trying to check this box off. Like, yeah. I played the notes and rhythms and I came up with a interpretation. Therefore, I now know Peter's advanced one. Right. And he was more like, no, you need to be listening to Peter's advanced one and realizing that no matter how many times you play it, you can learn something because it's not about the repertoire. It's about the skills. Yeah. Um, and we didn't have that specific conversation, but like in hindsight, like I'm like, that's exactly what he was telling me. You know, yeah. that's at least that's what I took from it. And as you can see, it still kind of influences like, you know, of the course. research that I make now. What's the finishing for that uh, doctoral degree? Is it a do- is it a, a document or is it like multiple recitals? What what do they ask for? Um, so we had multiple recitals that were part of the program. Um, so I gave three. Um, I think I gave you know two solos in a chamber or something around those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also had the choice to either do a recording project or a document, mm-hmm. um, and or or a lecture recital. You could do either of those. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I did the document. I, yeah. you know, I, I had that point, I had two kids mm-hmm. and, you know, practice time was so few far in between, like getting to the buildings. We didn't live in Athens. So like yeah. traveling there would be, you know, late at night. And I was already leaving early in the morning to practice in the mornings. And so it was like, I can actually write a paper um, at night, right after the kids go down and I can yeah. write. So I ended up writing a a document that is when I kind of first came across the, the concept of elocutionary force. Um, yeah. And that, that document was just all about trying to, you know, establish performance analysis as a viable entity. Um, you know, the field of performance studies deals with per, um, performance analysis um, and, and other aspects. And there's a couple of very interesting scholars, uh, Nicholas Cook and John Rink, who started talking about you know, hey, we need to also consider performers analysis or like the shape-based observations that performers make about music. You know, things we talk about, the energy of phrases or gestures that don't fit neatly into traditional musicologies, yeah. um, but still have value. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things that I think came out of that dissertation research is the idea that, you know, we, we often think of the score as, as fixed and like, this is the true representation of a piece. Right. Um, and I think it was the research of, I think it was Nicholas Cook, and I'm being correct, um, that was saying, well, actually, the score is just the closest approximation that the composer was able to get to notate the ideas that are in their head. Yeah. So the piece actually exists within their head. And then if we think about the audience, the audience is going to understand the score through um, aural means. That's how the score exists to them. Beethoven 5 exists to them through hearing it, not through its written form. Right. Which was just an approximation of what, you know, Beethoven was conceptualizing. Yeah. Um, which, you know, helps us kind of tie it in with Pierre Schaeffer's spectral morphology, right? Yeah, yeah. The idea of, you know, like, you know, sound and understanding scan, which is really great for electroacoustic music, which was kind of where I was going with it at the time. Um, but I think like that idea of like viewing, like, hey, wait, you know, yeah, we need to put some emphasis on on scores and and trying to replicate scores when they exist. But 
they we can't be so stuck on the score as a fixed entity because the score is inherently flawed. Right. You know, it is just as close as someone could could notate their ideas. And those of us that have written music know that we always can't notate our ideas. Like sometimes yeah. some things just don't work and we maybe make concessions and like, fine, I'm just going to listen and put it like this, you know, or I'm going to do these things to represent this idea. Or maybe I'll write a blurb to try to explain that. And even then we're limited by the vocabulary that we have to express it. So, um, yeah. yeah, I wrote a document and I was kind of, you know, dealing with and grappling with those, those concepts and ideas. And, um, you know, I still cringe, like, like probably most people that have written a document, I cringe anytime I get close to clicking on it. And so like, I'm like I can't read this again. Yeah, this yeah. Was, you know, uh, um, but, uh, but, but yeah, yeah. I ended up choosing to write a document. But there was this period of time where you were before you, you are at Fayetteville state, right. Where you're working just multiple jobs. So tell me about how those uh, how those other places of employment started to come up and you were starting to kind of create a career out of all of these various things that you were doing. Most of it kind of came out of this desire to do anything. Um, I had, you know, I've got three kids now, but at the time I had two kids and, um, you know, I needed to work. And so if someone said, you know, I need someone to teach music appreciation. It was like, okay, I can teach music appreciation. I can teach world music cultures. You know, it's really kind of networking, you know, you kind of get to know people and they need different things. And, you know, traveling wasn't an issue uh, because I had a car that worked. And so, you know, if I had to travel three hours to Greensboro, like I was going to drive to Greensboro and, you know, make sure that I could, could make it work. Um, and so that's really a lot of it kind of came about word of mouth. You know, you get to work with one person and, you know, they're like, hey, by the way, there's also this opportunity over here. Um, you may want to look into it. It's like, well, yes, I would like to look into that opportunity. And um, and a lot of those in an interesting way, um, I wasn't expecting them to be related to my degree. And I think this is something I've seen in, in other, especially doctoral students. You know, we get this idea of like, all right, I'm trained to be you know, a, either a percussion performer or a college, you know, percussion professor. And the reality of it is we're trained to do a variety of things and all of them can inform percussion in some way or another. You know, it's like by learning to, you know, teach a world music cultures class, you kind of learn the impact of like what it is that we do in our field and how it connects to the wider world. You know, by teaching music appreciation, I think we also get an appreciation of how open non-percussionists are to music that is way outside of the norm. You know, we, we talked about, you know, vernacular popular traditions earlier and to musicians, sometimes we're a little more closed off to that than non-musicians who are just kind of like, you know, it all sounds like noise to me anyway, you know, <laughs> whether you're playing, you know, Haydn or, or Schoenberg. So like, I'm cool. Like, what is this? And they have like these really interesting concepts and it almost always comes back to film scoring. Uh, but I think as a percussionist, it also helps your programming because you're not feeling like they're automatically going to be turned off to this piece of music just because it's not it's not normative, you know. And so I think in a lot of ways it was it was networking, and I learned a lot from those networking opportunities, even though they weren't directly related to what my you know future career goals were. What did you mean by it was all it's all film scoring? You know, if I if I played let's say uh, Pierre Lunaire. Uh, Pier, Piero, Piero Lunar, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, they're like, oh man, this reminds me of like a horror movie. 
and they're like in it because they love horror movies and it's not like oh this this is not you know, <laughs> you know um and so like they're they to me to them it everything that we i played there it always always came back to some some form of a movie or something like that where they had this frame of reference maybe a tv show and they were just extremely open to music i'm like wow like i wonder what i can play for you yeah. Um, and another experience for me that was very similar was I, I taught at a uh, child development center for a few months and, you know, I was not trained as a general music teacher. So it was once again, a lot of reading, um, and studying to make sure, you know, I don't mess up someone's kids and, um, you know, but it, it, again, it was like, you know, you play for, you know, I played these kids were, you know, eight, eight weeks all the way up to five years. And, you know, I'll play some Bartok for them. And they're listening to Bartok string quartets and like jumping all around. And it's like, it's great. And, you know, there's so, there's so much openness outside of music to what we do. Um, it may not necessarily be from the lens that, that we come at it from, but um, there's, there's a lot of openness. And so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of my positions were, were networking and just not saying no, to opportunities, if it was loosely related to music, that was my goal. Like I wanted to work in music. And so I would just say yes. And, and the opportunities fortunately just kept kind of showing up in different ways. That's a great point about being open to so many things, particularly if you relate it to film music. Do you know, um, Mirage, Siyoshi, that marimba piece? Yes. So I, it's one of my favorite of that style. Um, and I've played that and told people like, think of this as, as like a score um, and imagine what you might be seeing. And I, and I played it. I remember students would be like, yeah, I imagine like Tom and Jerry cartoons uh, while, while I was playing that. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> Good. It's, it's a great yeah. connection. Yeah. I mean like any reaction to music, I think is a great one, you know, almost. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. I played branches with a, a buddy of mine and my mother was in the audience and I just knew she was going to hate it. And she was so moved by it. I'm like, really? Like, really? Like you liked branches. She was like, yeah, I loved it. And I'm like, all right, this is awesome. Like, you know. <laughs> nice. And then you play one other piece and they're like, no, that was, that was garbage. I was like, all right, yeah. this went too far. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, you were willing to travel kind of, I guess, within some reason to make that work, right? Absolutely. And I think in a lot of ways, I'm just extremely fortunate and privileged that my wife had a job. And we also had a period where we didn't have jobs. Like as both as graduate students, we were very used to living on very limited means. And so like her having a job meant like, okay, well now collectively we've got more money than we've ever had. Um, you know, even though it wasn't very much and, and it's like, okay, so even if this opportunity comes out where I'm losing money in the short term, I can see how this can lead to a bigger opportunity where I'm making money in the long term, um, which made it very easy to say yes. And, and she was also very supportive and kind of understanding like, all right, you know, I understand that you're doing this thing and, you know, you may be just kind of paying for your gas on the way there. Um, but I could see how this could work out on the way back. Um, now, if I had to do it, you know, for several more years, I don't know if it would have remained quite so understanding, but having that support system to like, okay, I see this is your vision. You know, I may not quite understand it, but you know, we can make it work. And that I, I definitely wouldn't have been able to do it without her. It wasn't necessarily a, 
you know, my, my vision alone, she was able to see that I had a passion for the vision, which made it very easy to say yes. Yeah. It's, it's hard to overstate how critical the, you know, if you have a, a spouse who, who understands the deal like that, that can make it well easier. And I put that in quotes, um, yes. you know, you're not, you're not the only, um, and obviously because you had already had a family at this point, you were also, you, you were constantly having to think about other people. And, yeah. and so, yeah, you, you could, I, I, I can see it as being, all right, for maybe this weekend, I have this opportunity, but I can only take this one weekend. This is, this is the only weekend this is going to work. That's it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The very, very, very thin windows of time, you know, that you have to, to use. And um, the, a personal anecdote, I, I, I remember I, I had to figure out practice time and, you know, you got to get my kids to school and all this. And, um, and it really seemed that, you know, very early in the morning was a great time. And so during graduate school, I had just about every hour scheduled. And um, this included like time with my wife, you know, like, all right, so, you know, we're going to, you know, spend some time together between the hours of, you know, six and seven. Yeah. And like one day she happened upon my list and, you know, it was really, really frustrated. She was like, Wait, you can't schedule time with me. You should want to spend time with me. And I was like, I do, I do. I just need to make sure I get it all in. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I, I tell my students that story. I'm like, so, you know, you know, you want to schedule these things, but, you know, you don't always have to be so, so specific in your time frames. You know, I want to get to this, this today. So I don't forget about it. Right, right. Um, but, but yeah, definitely. You know, the idea of like, there's a very limited time frame in order to keep the balance of all of these moving pieces. If it doesn't fit in that time frame, sometimes it just has to be known, no matter how great the opportunity is, because, you know, there are all these other pieces that also matter, you know? I'm glad you also made the point of realizing that this this is good for now, like you piecing everything together, but there's a limit. I I can't do this for a long period of time because everything I will lose pretty much everything. <laughs> My mental health, like top of the list. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely, definitely. And and I think you know, trying as, as best as possible to to look at the opportunities and say, okay, this is a really good one. I'm going to take this one. And I'm going to go off on this limb. But also like, I know in the back of my mind, like this is not a blank check, right? You know, I can't do this forever, you know? So at some point I've got to find this balance. Yeah, it's a really good point. How does the the situation kind of open up for you at Faithful State? Don and I played in the orchestra together and this was one of your many things you yeah were yeah one of the many things so so freelancing and then doing a lot of a lot of teaching adjunct and um and so we were playing in the orchestra together and he mentioned like hey you know this position you know is going to come up you know and i looked and it was posted and i was like okay well all right so how do i like take this franken career that i've created so far and like turn it into like a narrative, like to say like, this is what I do. And this was all intentional. Yeah. Um, and not to say it was like smoke and mirrors, because it really, when you think about your career, you're like, okay, this is all, I am the sum of my experiences and this has all shaped me. How does this make sense to this, this other entity that's going to, you know, want to say, all right, so I see that you've, you know, taught music theory to sound engineers. Like, all right. So like, you know, how does that, you know, how does that connect to teaching our percussionists? You know, and, yeah. 
And it's like, well, it does, you know, because, you know, whatever. And you, and you try to put that lens on like, all right, here are the things that I've done. I've known why I've done them, but now I have to make sure that, you know, this group understands I didn't, I wasn't just randomly doing things. I do have a career focus and this is how it all kind of fits together. Um, which is, I think, the benefit of a graduate degree. You know, it forces you to grab little straws and, and put them together and create a single narrative, you know? So, um, but yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely the position opened up and um, he kind of tipped me off that it was posted. Um, so I looked and, and uh, started to piece together my narrative and all, all the things that I needed to kind of make sure I was eligible for the position. Um, it ended up being a position that was... I didn't hear anything for a long time and I began to be concerned. Yeah, like, now oh. you meant you didn't hear that. This is still at the, you put your application in phase in. Yes. I put my application in and I hadn't heard anything about like, uh, you know, any sort of uh, Skype interview or campus interview, nothing. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, all right, you know, it's been a while. Like, all right, I guess this was a no. Um, yeah. And, and my wife was like, well, you know, you may just, just send a letter and, and thank them, you know, and, you know, which, you know, you know, like, you know, being, being at a university now, especially, you know, how sensitive of a thing that can be. Yeah. And, you know, so like probably like 15 or 20 drafts later to like create the most neutral, you know, letters possible, like, all right, so, you know, here's, you know, thank you for this position. And, you know, I, I just wanted to, you know, see, you know, what the, the process is, you know, where, where things are in the process. And a week later I had a Skype interview um and a week later i had a campus interview and it was like bang 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 because you know i think one of the things that that being on the job market you don't understand about you know those of us who are teaching it on the search committee is that like we don't get a course release for the search committee right you know <laughs> we all have all of our duties and so they, i guess they were just overwhelmed and i get it like i get it now i'm like my gosh you know teaching as many classes as i teach anytime a search committee comes up it's always like flying by the seat of your pants yes because there's so much to handle right um on the paperwork side and in the reading application side and so yeah um whatever however that worked together like that was the time frame you know i i i send this letter just kind of asking about the process and have a skype interview and and it was very positive energy kind of both ways and had a campus interview and really, really kind of, you know, gelled well with my colleagues there. And, and then, you know, ended up getting a call about the position, not too far after that, maybe a couple of weeks. Um, so the time frame of like, all right, I've got to start putting things together to apply for other positions to like having the position was like a month. Um, it was, it was insane. Uh, Wait, so, okay. So hold on. There's, there's the thing I'm missing though, is when you send that in, Mm -hmm. like the what's the process and you haven't gotten anything like you've heard nothing what what was what was their response to that letter it couldn't have been the skype interview it had they had to have been like oh hey this is like <laughs> what, what was what was what's missing what's that that interaction yeah yeah so i think i'm trying to think um exactly because i i reached out to I, I found out who the chair of the search committee was mm -hmm. um or at least was able to narrow it down yeah and um and I think they just kind of said, you know, oh, thank you. You know, I mean, all the answers have to be like extremely political. So, of course, like, yeah. you know, right. Thank you for writing an email to me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, that's, you know, that's it. You know, you're like, oh, gosh, they hate me. You know, I'm, I'm right, blacklisted. Right. I will never work anywhere ever yeah. again. Um, and so then it was, yeah, just kind of 
it wasn't uh you know hey how's it going i mean it kind of was but it was very very blank and you Mm -hmm. know because they don't you know obviously want someone to be like wait i thought he was going to guarantee me a position because he was so nice in his email and sure (laughs) right yeah you don't want that I was imagining that that the, the, you know they're on the phone or something uh, it's like they're on the phone and they're and they're looking around like do we do we have a do we have a job opening like we do I'm in charge uh, and then they like come back you know that that's where that's where I thought <laughs> that might have actually went out of it very well could this be. semester very well. <laughs> Really? <laughs> you don't <Question>. say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would not be surprised. Uh, um, not not because of my colleagues. They're they're great. Right, right. But like just knowing, like yeah, it could totally happened to me. Like <laughs> exactly. Like, oh man, I you know I knew they had talked about it, but I didn't realize like we actually had something out there. Right. <laughs> We've. Uh, uh, there's a we have a job. Uh, I'm on a search committee right now for a position, and I know that whenever we have our, we've had kind of like the opening meetings, but like when we have the the first meeting where we're reviewing candidates, I'm going to be like, you know, 12 hours before that meeting, like like oh my god, look at how many people I got. Like you know, it's going to be one of those, and it's again because there's no course release, so it's like you have a moment to like check that over. <laughs> Yes, which I think, you know, I think has forever changed being on a search committee has forever changed how I approach, you know, writing those those letters and teaching philosophies. Yeah. Like with the mentality of like these people, you know, it's not that they don't care about you. Yes. It, it's just because, you know, we don't necessarily have the time to read into the nuance of your letter and read yeah. between the lines and be like, all right, I'm gonna give this the most careful reading I've ever given a CV ever. <laughs> You know, and, you know, grab, you know, a, a bottle of uh, uh, Merlot or something and sit by the fire and, you know, just simmer in the ambiance. Yes. Beautiful teaching statement philosophy. Right. Um, you know, and I'd love to, but like, it's just reality. It doesn't work that way. Just, so. just like, you know, just let it just, just kind of swirling the wine. And it's sitting in the decanter. And just, <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I can, I can breathe like, in the beauty of this. That's right. <laughs> They have degrees from Eastman and Curtis. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. An interesting dissertation topic. That's yes, amazing. Right. <laughs> I cannot wait to ask this person more about radio yeah. music and stuff. You know, whatever. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> when you do find out that you get the position, what what's the process of either – decoupling yourselves from some of the other stuff you were doing um, and or deciding that maybe you can keep something going that you were doing outside. That was really, really hard um, because the institutions that I worked, I had such a close personal relationship with all my colleagues there. And like, I loved the students. Like I just, you know, it's, you know, I'm living the dream. Like I'm teaching percussion, you know, and it wasn't something that I ever really, really thought was truly possible. And so like doing it, yeah. you know, even at the adjunct level was like, man, like I'm getting paid to like do this stuff. Like, this is so great. Um, and so it was very, very hard. And once again, you know, it was one of those things where, um, you know, I drafted formal letters of resignation and then also like followed up with like lunch to, you know, talk with colleagues and make sure that, you know, we're kind of there helping them try to find people to fill in spaces and, 
Um, in some situations, you know, going back and like doing things to kind of make sure that, you know, the students are okay going into the future. Um, because, you know, it's not, you know, it's not just about a contract. I think for me, the positions that I took, I took for the students and I want to make sure like they're, they're, they're taken care of and they're not just kind of stranded as, you know, a, uh, you know, I left. So peace, you know, <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah no, so, so some of them, like I still have relationships with the schools and I still sure. kind of go back and, and do various things. And it's, uh, yeah, it was, that was, that was really surprisingly hard. I mean, as great as it was to get the position, it's like, all right, how can I keep all of these things going? It's like, I can't do that. It's not just not possible. And so the, for most things I said, no, um, a lot of the freelancing performing things, um, I just didn't say no, because, you know, those things just kind of go, they go in spurts, you know, there's comes times where you get a lot of gigs and there are times where you don't. And, um, that graduate school experience of balancing a lot of things helps when a lot of gigs are flowing and, um, you know, the stability of a teaching position helps when the gigs aren't flowing. Right. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my process for, for decoupling was, you know, sitting down and, and thinking about, okay, here's this position. Here's what I have to do. Here are the things that I think I can hold on to. Here are the things that I'm going to have to let go. And I, and I drafted letters and, and just kind of made sure to meet with them one-on-one to kind of talk through things, see how they can, you know, move going forward. Um, and so, yeah, hopefully, I mean, most of them, I hope, you know, if they ever hear this, we'll, we'll, we'll agree that we're, we're still on good terms, at least on my end. I think they're all yeah. great. Um, but yeah, that was, that was surprisingly tough. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, you, ha- you, like your position kind of de- at Fayetteville State developed too, right? I mean, it's, you weren't given all of these responsibilities at the beginning. They were, you started to kind of pick things up, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the, part of the, the issue was in the fact that like the position I was replacing was, you know, a full professor that carries a certain load. Right. And so I'm coming in like, not that, you know, a lecturer that carries a much larger load. And so, you know, I think other people had to carry different loads. And so eventually we kind of got it balanced out and, um, and that was useful on my part because I was able to breathe easier. I'm like, all right, you know, I'm adding value. I'm getting a certain amount of student face-to-face hours. My colleagues aren't going to be stressed and being like, why is that Millette sitting over there? Right, right, right. (laughs) You know, grinding coffee at his office all day long, you know? Yeah. Um, Right. (laughs) Yes. Cause, cause again, the, the canters in the evening when you're, (laughs) that's right. That's right. right. But the beans have to be, have to be uh, shredded and and grinded for the morning. Yes. That's right. You know, Um, and, and funny enough, I do have this hand grinder that I, that I keep in my office, like totally coffee obsessed. And, um, (laughs) and uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm sitting on these zoom meetings, like grinding things. You're looking at me like, what is he doing? It's like, wait, let me do that. Hold on. <laughs> of course. That's hilarious. So, all right. Well, I finish up with a segment called Random Asked Questions. Okay. All right. So, first question is this one's not random because I do ask for everybody, which is an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? That is a great question. Probably the biggest thing that I see is probably related to, to canon formation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there is this reliance on existing music 
And I think there is this, this feeling of wanting to have an established repertoire. Um, and I get it. Um, but it, it also bugs me a little bit because a lot of that rep- repertoire that's established like privileges instruments that is completely inequitable for a broad swath of society. Mm-hmm. You know, like the five octave marimba seems like so normative now and it's great. It's a beautiful instrument. Like if I'm in a room and I have my choice of instruments, I'm probably going to the five octave. Mm-hmm. Yet there are so many schools that don't even have access. They right. don't even have a four and a half. Right. And, you know, by establishing a canon that is so steeped in privileging not only the marimba, which they may or may not have, but the five octave marimba specifically, you have all of these students that are looking at all these great pieces that they will never be able to play at their current situation. And it's like, well, all right, I obviously can't do that career option out. I see this kind of push towards like wanting to establish a repertoire that can, you know, rival the piano or rival the violin. And it's like, I don't know that that's necessarily the way to go, you know? And I mean, I, I get it because I think legitimacy within, you know, the current academy, we kind of need, we need a repertoire. We need, you know, people do come for pieces. Um, but, you know, also that generation of people that are, that are holding on to pieces and wanting to revisit them day after day, time after time it is kind of dwindling. Um, I think in a generation where, you know, TikTok is, you know, becoming a growing social media, there is an attention for quick novelties and things that are unique and and reflective of the times and people coming for the way they feel rather than a specific repertoire. Um, So I think if anything kind of gets under my skin, it's kind of that, that balancing act of like, you know, dealing with canon formation and so many things that are just not possible for a lot of students. And it, it took teaching in environments that had very, very little budget to see just how, how much of an uphill battle they're dealing with. Um, like I mentioned, like at Georgia, we had tons of equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at Howard, we had a decent amount of equipment. Like I didn't, it didn't touch me until I started adjuncting and it was like, oh, we've got this bell kit. All right. You know, <laughs> yeah. and it is, it's so very, very difficult to see that and to also kind of see this, this counter push for like, all right, we got to have repertoire. We got to do this. And, you know, younger and younger, you know, the pieces that are coming out, you know, are very like intermediate pieces for two five octave marimbas. <laughs> you can't do that. Right. You know, like there's so many schools that can't play this at all. Right. You know, because they don't even have one five octave marimba, you know, at least write optional parts, you know, which used to be a thing for a while. And, and now it's, you know, I feel like, you know, I, I see it sometimes and sometimes I'm just like, man, this really could use an optional part for at least a four and a half. You know, right. you're going to have two or three marimbas involved in the same thing. But so yeah. that's probably as close as something gets to kind of getting under my skin. Um, but yeah, you you nailed it in so many ways, uh, not just the what happens for a lot of particularly new people coming out of graduate programs where their program more likely than not has everything or a or nearly everything or at least quick access to stuff if they don't have it. And then their first job or one of their first places is like adjunct or at a small school that has a very small budget. And you're just, and I mean, I like, I, this happened to me. This happened to a lot of my friends where our first place were like, it's like, Oh, well now I'm down to a crappy xylophone <laughs> and a four and a third that has three cracked bars 
in the bottom, like five notes. And, uh, oh, and I have to tr- now figure out a percussion ensemble program. Right. And like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just and it's like well this is this gets to it's funny because this gets to kind of some of what happens at at PASIC when you will go to like a new literature and one of the people I'm interviewing um, is doing is running the new literature portion and 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 one of the things that that was crazy is when I was when I was doing the percussion studio thing full time how many times I'd go and I'd be like eighty percent of the things I'm like can't play it you know just, yeah can't do it. Okay, don't have that I was like oh here's one all right. <laughs> That's a that's a challenge, I, and also the other thing that you nailed was about the desire for respectability within the within the academy, and and the comparisons to instruments that have been around for literally hundreds of years longer. Yeah, <laughs> what's interesting is like even with newer written like I'll think in like the percussion concerti realm, it's like even yeah. with newer pieces, you know, if they have to go up, like if they're in a percussion, if they're in a concerto competition. And they got to go up against like the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto or Rachmaninoff two or three. It's like I'm sorry, you're not going to beat them if they're if it's the same. No, <laughs> like too bad. Even the trumpet wow. players, like seriously, I got to go up against Rock three. <laughs> you know, right? So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to some other questions. Um, has anyone? These are now we're going kind of off off kilter here. Has anyone oh, yeah. ever ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Um, so in, in varying ways, in varying okay. ways. Uh, so um, definitely, I've had like you know students like you know I always try to you know dress a little on on the nicer side. You know, not necessarily super nice, but you know. Um, you know, at least business casual. And so, you know, I'll have some students that'll, that'll kind of do some impressions and things like that. Um, I've also had, you know, some students, uh, you know, who, who will be like, I'm going to call you Dr. C. And I'm like, Dr. C, like, I don't get this. Yeah. And like, cause you remind me of Carlton. And I'm like, oh. oh, like, man, I wish I had his bank account. Like, that would be so great. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like yeah, Alphonse Rivera. Like send that check right on down the road, you know. Um, and and it's and it's really cool, you know. I think uh, it, it's cool because like it's not it's not in a malicious way, you know, or anything like that. But like, yeah, you know, I could see it. You know, I could be a little little stuffy, especially you know. I start you know going off spouting all this stuff, and it's like, all right, I get it. It's fair, you know. I'll take it. You, know? <laughs> you just need to you just need to finish out any comments with it's not unusual to me. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, what do you mean, Doctor C? It's not on you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but I mean, you know, like, and that's that's part of like, I think, you know, respect within, you know, your students. You know, if you're gonna dish it, you know, we're so right. critical of them almost all the time. It's like, all oh, right, yeah. I can take it. Like, I can yeah. take a joke. Like, it's good. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, and then you you'll start being like, you know, it's it's like that's my voice is not actually that high. Like, right, right, right. <laughs> know this, you know. <laughs> Even though, like, their impression will be like super, super up in the range or something. Like, you, you're like, if you're gonna do this, like, come on, like, get close at least. Right, 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 right. <laughs> what is a skill that you have that is not at all marketable, and you couldn't make money from, but you're an all-time great at? That is a really, really good question. 
and probably not, you know, for the reasons you're thinking, I think there's just far too many to pick one. Um, I, I would say amongst them is um, I, I'm really good at, at talking to myself. Um, and like, and I think it, it results from like being in a practice room for so long. Sure. That like, you know, I have like full blown conversations and, you know, and, and there's like, you know, all this sort of anecdotal stuff. People are like, you know, if you talk to yourself, it's not great. And I'm like, but I have a really great time. Yeah. Cause I like, I find myself hilarious sometimes. I'm like, oh gosh, that was, I would pat myself on the back, but then it would look like, you know, like weird. But, you, you know, like, high five, you high five. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, so like that definitely is a skill. Like I can really keep myself company for long extended periods of time, which helps during the commute. Of course. Know, sometimes I'll, I'll turn off the radio and I'll just have, you know, this, you know, rhetorical debate with myself and just try to debate both sides. And it's really a great time. Yeah. Um, Tell and... old stories about yourself. Of course. <laughs> you remember. Since nobody asked. I want to tell you. <laughs> so it's, it's, that's definitely a skill. That's um, I, I, I'm uh, sadly like in that boat completely. <laughs> Though I will say for me, the practice room conversations are, are, are more just like, Wow, you suck, and then just like move on to the next thing. Wow, you, you're still terrible at that. I don't know if you, you those come up with you, but <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely, definitely, it definitely comes out, and and it's like, all right, you know, but then it's like, all right, so let me do. Oh, this this phrase is about this. This phrase is. I wonder if this phrase could do this, and like it's like this conversation. I'm like, yeah. oh, this is what it's saying, and like I'll be like, yes, this is amazing, or right. like, wow, I need to practice, you yeah. know, and like it's just it's like this great, great, great conversation. The other one. Uh, my daughter made me hip to, um, I have this weird way of shaking my head. No, when I mean, yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. So like, they'll be like, how's it going? I'm and like, you know, is everything okay? I'd be like, oh yeah. You know, things are great. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know that was really like, sweet and casual. I get it. You know, like, like, I have no idea what it is, but you know, yeah. it's, apparently I'll, I'll count that under very useless skills. Um, those are awesome. <laughs> what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie all right so as a, as a dad i will go with this one i think uh coco is a great movie yeah um those that have that have checked it out i think the music is great i think the the story makes me cry um and my daughter's a recent teenager and she recently saw it at school you know after going through that phase of like oh i can't watch you know disney movies yeah. um and she was like why didn't you tell me this movie was so great <laughs> And I was like, it really is, isn't it? Like, yeah. and so we kind of riffed on that for a little while. So definitely it's in my head in recent memory as, as a truly great movie, a terrible movie. Oh gosh. I, I love terrible movies. Um, so like, I, I have like these two phases, like I either like things that are super intense or yeah. things that are super mindless. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I don't know if I could really pick something that I thought was truly terrible. It could be something that was like really disappointing. That's another kind of phase of this. Mm-hmm. You wanna, if that helps, may not. But right. like, well, what, what are the what are the terrible what are the terrible? Okay, we'll put it in quotes. What are the terrible movies that you enjoy? That I enjoy. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I am I am a, a big fan of of rom coms. Okay. Um, and so like, there's some you know like must love dogs like just <laughs> like you know it's just it's awful but it's so great you know and. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, what is it? Uh, Fifty First Dates. Oh uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, like yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. Love, love that movie. You know, I don't know that it's 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 the best, but I love Adam Sandler. Um, so I think he's hilarious. 
Um, but you know, everything in that, in that category, uh, sleepless in Seattle, mm-hmm. yes, you've got mail, like all oh, these are so great. Like I, I can watch them a thousand times. <laughs> um, I think they're, they're delightful. In fact, uh, sleepless in Seattle has a scene where, you know, the kid's coming downstairs and, you know, the, the dad is, uh, I guess on a date or something like that. And, and the kid, you know, cries so like, or like screams. And my daughter happened to be coming down the stairs at the very same time that mm-hmm. the scene happened. And she just, she got totally freaked out and scared. She was like, ah, we had to like pause the movie and, and like console her and be like, I promise it's not a scary movie. But like, you know, for the longest time, she was like, I've never watched that movie. It's terrifying. <laughs> um, gotcha. Um, so definitely, definitely. I, I would put, put, put my love of rom-coms and movies that aren't particularly great that that i could watch i think i feel like this could be this next one question could be a long list so i i look forward to your answer but what's a a favorite book on on some sides of things i think jim collins flywheel is is such a great book for i think thinking through processes okay um and very similarly this book by Anne lamott bird by bird i think you know it's about writing but um, I think, you know, the idea of like thinking through processes is just so useful in, in kind of the humanity of, of the language in that book is just phenomenal. Um, also, I, I have to put in there Cold Sassy Tree. Uh, it's a book I read in high school. And for what it represented to me, like I wasn't the strongest student in middle school. And so I was really nervous about, you know, summer reading in high school. Mm. And so like, I read the book three times because I was like, there's no way I'm failing this test for summer reading. Like, you know, I'm going to know this. But I've also gone back to that book several times. And I think, you know, the way it talks about culture is just so, so kind of touching. Um, So definitely we'll put that in that category. I mean, there are things, books like, you know, W.B. Du Bois is uh, The Soul of Black Folks, which I think are kind of constantly books that I revisit. and And I'm just amazed at the dialogue in them. Um, after the musical Hamilton came out, I went back and read Chernoff's Hamilton, which I thought was like such a, it was such a great book. I, I like, just oh, started gosh. that. Yeah. Oh, it's gosh. so big. There's it so many huge. words in that book. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. But man, like such a, such a, such a great book. I, I love it. Cool. Um, there's also some books on African-American music uh, that I actually recently read. One's a reader called that's the joint by mark anthony neal and murray foreman mm. and where's another one that i read recently it's about the business of hip-hop and i, I, I oh um big payback big payback yes have you read that i haven't i have it on my shelf but I, i've heard awesome things about it oh my gosh really engaging like really really great book um okay i, I definitely enjoyed that yeah. Um, so I think that kind of rounds out the different spheres, you know, at least yeah. the recent array of kind of books that, that I read. And, yeah. yeah, I was, um, so one of my, um, a book that I'm like super interested in, uh, because uh, one of my colleagues got, he like basically Oxford for some, like he's, he's developing some classes. He's the jazz professor and he and I teach our jazz pop and rock course together. And um, one of the books that I'm super interested in, uh, do you know this? Uh, yes. I, I read through the first volume. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, there's a, oh, the first edition? Or the first there... edition. Yeah. First okay. edition. Sorry, not first volume. Yeah. yeah so this is, edition. since this is not, a, this is audio, Rap and Hip Hop Culture by Fernando, um, or I'm going to say Ore Huela, I think is the, um, is the author. Yeah. Anyway, um, 
I, I came across this name because this person knows one of our, my colleagues here who's awesome, uh, Stephanie Shanakan. And, um, and I was like, and I was just like briefly looking over, like, I have to read this as soon as possible. Cause like, it's yeah. just so much amazing information in it. I can already tell. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really, really interesting book and I have not gone into the second edition yet. Mm. Um, but I did order a copy and, and definitely, definitely looking forward to kind of digging in there. Cause it's the first one is so, I, I love the way he lays it out. You know, he he really kind of talks about it from a strengths-based perspective. Yeah. I think with hip-hop, you know, it's very easy to kind of get caught up in, you know, lyrical content or right. in things like that, which are which struggle, you know. And, um, you know, as a Black man in America, like, I struggle with it, too. Like, I'm sitting here like, ooh, I don't know if I can endorse this. And then, you know, as a father, I'm like, ooh, I don't know that I want you to listen to this. And, like, yeah. and so trying to, like, you know, grapple with, like, what what it is and what it means and and really kind of understand it from, you know, kind of the, from their, from their story and from, from kind of with a, a nuanced background, it's just so helpful yeah. um, because, you know, I didn't grow up in the Bronx, you know, I didn't grow up in now in, in California, like where this was actually happening. I, I learned it from the radio and from, right. you know, bootleg recordings, you know, and I was an adolescent. And so, you know, I wasn't necessarily like, oh yeah, tell me all about the roots of this. Like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, like who are, who are, you know, I, I, you know, I was exposed to what was on the radio or what I got, you know, off food like albums. And, and so like, there's some stuff that I'm, I'm familiar with, but there's also a lot of it. I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't get that. Okay. I see this connection here and this is yeah, really, really useful. And, um, and yeah, I think, I think that's a really, really good book. And awesome. Um, also the reader, if you get a chance, if you're doing any sort of uh, hip hop studies, that's the joint. It's just a compendium of, mm. of a bunch of articles and they're very, very uh, considerate and, and present a very, very nice picture of not only, you know, what hip hop is, but kind of, you know, how we can use it in the academy and how we can understand it. And yeah. just really, really, really great. Awesome. Um, I, I'm while you're talking, cause I'm trying to think if I have it, cause I I've like over the years, I've accumulated a lot, a lot of books that I haven't gotten the chance to read cause there's so many good, so much good stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, cause the one that I was thinking of, and this is one that I'm, um, that I have read that I was, that, um, it was Nelson George. Yeah. I don't know where it is, but the other, the other one that I was going to tell you, the reason that I know about, uh, Fernando Orjuela, do you know this? No, 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 I haven't seen that yet. So um, Black Lives Matter and Music um, is a collection of it's it's the article that kind of brought me into it was about um, since I teach at Mizzou was about the 2015 protests. Yeah. Um, and kind of the the again, my colleague, Dr. Stephanie Shanakan, she did a she wrote about and she was kind of heavily involved in that and particularly from the students perspective. And so it's a really great look at. And I and I te teach that article in one of my classes because it's not just because it's about Mizzou, but it's also trying to get students to understand the connection between music, like how important music is to the people who are protesting and how they can relate. And so it does a really good job of kind of explaining the some of the students of the time, their uh, motive, like what was keeping them going through yeah. what's still a really um fraught situation for lack of a better word um yeah. so there's a lot but there's in that there's a lot of other good articles um that are, are escaping my uh but are, are related uh topics 
So, yeah, yeah. I think, in fact, you know, um, I would like to see that happen in percussion. You know, I, I'd like to see us have more, you know, compendiums of, of articles that tackle special issues. Yeah. Um, Cause I think there's, there's a lot of little things that we could talk about that I think would be really rich and, and useful to kind of engage in that dialogue, a number of different perspectives, which I think is huge. Yeah. You know, having people that are, that are kind of talking about it and, and then you can revisit those and it's like, Oh, wow. Okay. I get a big, you know, meta analysis of this issue, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I can kind of form an informed position from it, you know, and that, that's really, really, really kind of hip. I, I agree. That would be that would be amazing. KAS specifically has been um, not just like through di- the diversity um, collective, but also through North Carolina Anti's drumline and how that kind of opened so many so many people's eyes a bunch of years ago. Yeah, which uh, it basically and and what everyone realizes is or should have realized is that this group should have been playing. 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. We should have had generations of people like understand how awesome like HBCU drum lines are and what they do. And it took like four years ago when that finally happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're they're great. Yeah. They're yeah. great. And and Lamont is incredible. incredible yeah. Incredible musician. Yeah, he's awesome. Well, we haven't covered this at all. Are do you have a sports fandom? Growing up, I was an Atlanta Braves fan. So, oh wow! So this is a good week for you. Yeah, great, great, great week. And <laughs> um, also, I was a fan of the the Washington football team now, uh, which mm. is which is great. But I, I married into a Browns family, so interesting. So now I'm like you know a, a Browns fan by by uh, box score. You know, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> I I like, I'm like, all right. <laughs> Oh man, Sunday afternoon. Let me check the box score real quick. See how they do. You know, yeah, yeah. My father-in-law real quick. Oh, tough week or great week. You know, um, and then as a UGA grad, you know, big big UGA football fan. Sure. Um, very very excited to see them doing so well. Well, they and our teams play each other this weekend. That's uh, right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> we uh, barely escaped uh, Vanderbilt last weekend. So yeah, not we're not not having our best season at Mizzou this year. So no, the rich program, really, really, really rich program. Over <laughs> I, I two years ago. Um, so our we we will we actually are sending a pep band. I'm not on traveling, but uh, for this particular trip. But two years ago, I did get to go see us play at Georgia, and it was like, yeah. I, you know, it's one of the great college football environments. I I had heard about it, but getting to experience yeah. it was pretty awesome. You know, game days, you know, on Saturdays, which are like prime practice days. Right. So, yes. You, know, and you just got so a time like, when you get in and when you get out. <laughs> I would I would get in at five. Yeah. And I wasn't the first one in the parking lot. Like there's already a couple of tents like tailgating. I'm like, gosh, like I'm here. It's, it's still dark. Like, yeah. How are you in here? <laughs> yeah. Of course. Like, Y'all are at it. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, that's so true. It, it makes me think of, and this is not not specific to Georgia, although I know the Georgia Florida game ends up being its its own has its own like is it like the yeah. world's biggest cocktail party or something like that? Yeah, it's definitely definitely yeah. is. Um, but you know, one of the things I had heard about 
the Red River rivalry, Oklahoma, Texas, is that mm-hmm. one of the reasons that game is at 11 a.m. local time is because if it's any later, the drinking will just get like progressively worse to like exponentially. And they're just like, we need to just get this game out of the way. <laughs> with <the> minimal. <laughs> it's already fraught enough between these two people, these two teams. <laughs> let's, just, yeah. let's just get it done. <laughs> Gotcha. Well, it's like, and and you being now you've now you have to pay attention to. It's like you go from one franchise that's had a lot of success but extremely fraught with Washington, and then you get to another franchise that just is all uh, crushing defeats and um, problem. I mean, I'm a Jets fan, so it's like I get this too. Like this is this is right in my wheelhouse. But like like uh, us and the, and the Browns in particular, we we have a lot to commiserate together about. Yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Because <laughs> there's there's so much hope, you know, there's so much hope for the For like a couple weeks. <laughs> right. They're like, oh, man, we've got the team this year. It's right. Like, oh, no. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Related with the Browns, when they, um, you know, they had they had lost like 20 something games in a row and. Of course, they they break their streak against the Jets, like a, like a, the least surprising result. I am watching that game. There are in in Missouri. There's like three or four friends who are all Browns fans, and so I was watching. Of course, I was watching the game with them, and they're just in a, and they're like as depressed or more depressed as I typically am watching the Jets. And sure enough, I get to experience them beat my team to end their streak, and I. I was both mad, but I was also like, I guess I'm happy for them. You know? It's a hard, it's a hard time. Hard, yeah. hard time for the Browns. <laughs> uh, oh, that's crazy. What is your go-to karaoke song? Two, two. Um, okay. One of them is because I know it will drive my kids crazy. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be, uh, gosh, what's the name of that song? Frank, Frank Sinatra. Um, my way, uh, my way, or, yeah, oh, it yeah, is my, my way. way, okay, my way, yeah. Um, because it's so long, like, <laughs> it just drives them nuts. They're like, can't, you can't do that because we you know we do it all as a big family. We got a couple of mics out, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so that that's definitely one. And then you know, I, I also love you know, I, I will survive. You know, Gloria mm-hmm. Gaynor tune, and I think it's such a you know, just just great, you know, fun, fun spirited. Um, if I'm gonna sing out a tune, it's got to be something you know, impactful. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great that's awesome. all right uh where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to so i actually haven't spent much time in in europe at all um like and i would i would like to to spend some more time i've never been to germany i've never been to spain um i haven't spent any time in asia in my my best friend right now is in Taiwan. Um, and so I would definitely love to get out, get out to Taiwan at some point. Um, just beautiful cultures, a lot of history. Um, I'm a big European football fan and that would be really great. Um, I would also like to get to Manchester. So is that your team? Manchester United. That's my team. Okay. Um, which, you know, I, you know, it sounds, it's, it's, it's the poppy choice. I know, but you know, I was young when I picked them. And so I stick with them. Um, also having kind of a rough time now, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So those, those are definitely, definitely on my list of places. What, why, why them? Why is that your, your soccer club of choice? 
football. Oh, so, uh, so you know when when Ronaldo was like you know really young and mm-hmm. he was like playing. And right. Was, yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know, I'm gonna be like that one day. Mm-hmm. Just wait until I'm 35. You're gonna see me, you know, doing that, not teaching percussion somewhere, right? Um, you know, it worked out in the reverse, but um, you know, just just loved him. And I and then when they had uh what's his name? Uh the coach they recently fired, not too recently. Uh it's like Josie. Um mm. I can't remember his last name, but uh, man, he was like, he was such a dramatic character. And I just, I just loved him. Like, I, I loved him. I love, I love there's always drama around Manchester United. Yeah. <laughs> and they have, they have a great team. They've got a great kit. And uh, um, yeah, I just, I just, just always kind of gravitated and always gravitated towards them. Cool. Do you, you, you got a team, you got a club? I No, see, I am a, um, I'm a national teams guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I get very. I mean, the U.S. men's national team is is among the most invested I get in anything. Yeah, uh, sports wise. So you know, I'm looking ahead while we're at Pasic. I don't know yeah. if you're aware, but we play Mexico at home Friday night. Yeah, and so I'm just like, oh, like that game is always just so fraught. And um, anyway, like it, we're just. It's like just just make the World Cup. Like just like God, I don't we, right. we can't miss again. That was so bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and I like yeah. I really like the fact that we're really just jumping into the young like this youth movement too. So that Absolutely part I'm, I'm excited about. Yeah. Some very talented young players. Yes, just incredible and. You know, luckily we've got like the greatest uh, women's team in the yes. world. Oh, that's forever! Amazing. And they're yeah. awesome. They're so awesome. Like yeah. I just, I just love, I love watching them play. Yeah, uh, the heart, the creativity on the on the field, uh, man. So yeah. you know, if only the guys could, you know, get a little better. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would, I would feel more complete in, in my soccer national team love. Yeah, I well, I, yeah. Like that's why I'm like I, I'm hopeful for this 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 group as they get, particularly as when we when we look forward to 2026 when we're actually hosting most of it. Yes, I'm like that should be we should be like really close. Um, but I don't even want to think of like no, we just need to make this World Cup. Like I'll relax. Yeah, no, no, I, I I agree. Exactly. Yeah strangest funniest or most bizarre performance moment that involves you oh this this one's this one's fairly easy okay. um, also kind of an embarrassing moment so i, I mentioned it at east carolina I, I played you know hand percussion in the in the jazz band yeah um and you know i was really nervous because you know i hadn't played you know on the stage before and so i'm warming up before the concert and i'm like finally like all right you know slaps are kind of there you know open tone sound good and i kind of lean back a little bit and we're on a riser and i tip all the way over and fall <laughs> right and for most people that would be like the most embarrassing moment right um but you know i kind of you know you know i had to like put myself up and sit back on and then in the middle of you know the big band chart there's a hand percussion solo you know and so i play you know a little little solo nothing super impressive you know just glad to get through it you know, it was like a, a, a measure or something like that. Yeah. And I got a standing ovation 
Because you know, during jazz, you don't wait to to clap. You know, you clap right after the solo. Yeah, yeah. I got a standing O because everyone had seen me fall. They were like, "He's alive!" <laughs> and everyone stands and they're clapping. And I'm like, "Oh gosh, this is like this is awful. This is awful." Like everyone, like this is just awful. Like everyone's like ribbing me. They're like, "Yeah, cute. They saw you." Um, yeah, definitely, definitely, hands down, most embarrassing moment on stage. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's here's the like that is that is like the classic. Um, you know how when uh, it's like at football games when when they'll they'll finally call a penalty on the other team and then the team's like yeah like it's like you realize we're all both we both can fouls called on us like it's like that kind of cheer it almost sounds like yeah oh yeah yeah yes. definitely he could sit down and he could play tones. <laughs> Greatest, greatest performance ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, man. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, I mean, after that, were you thinking, okay, was some of that like sarcastic or you know, like, like, I'm not sure how to take this. I, I was, I was no Giovanni Hidalgo. Like I, I knew like <laughs> this was, this was definitely like, you know, the pity clap. Like we want to support you so you don't like, you know, quit or something. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was awful. Awful, awful, awful. <laughs> uh, oh, that is amazing. Awesome. All right. Last question, Quentin. One piece of art uh, could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, uh, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently. Oh, that's a good one. Um, that's, that's a really great question. I would probably say um, because I'm in the middle of it, uh, Anna Karenina. Because of the, just the characters and how you can see yourself in so many different people and, and how you can see the kind of the situations unfold in your life, or you could even see like how under the right circumstances this could apply to you. Um, and I also, you know, everything eventually comes back to music. And I also see like the tragic phrases, you know, the like, oh yeah, you know, when I'm playing you know, the Bach Chacon, and there's this moment where it switches to D major, right? That's this moment. That's what it feels like right here. There's like this little bit of hopefulness that's there, but you also know it's not going to last, you know? And so like, that's, that to me, like, I think it's the most, it's the most perfect thing I've, I've experienced right now. But I also know that as soon as I read something else, it's also going to be, because it's like, it's whatever I'm reading, like becomes like, wow, this is so powerful. This is so moving. Um, so definitely that. Um, also, most lasting contribution would be a poem I read in middle school in a textbook. And it was a turtle lying on a lawn suffering from insomnia at midnight. And the poem was, the world is very flat. There is no doubt of that. And I loved how the title is like longer than the poem. I just found it to be so unique. Um, and to kind of say, you know, what it, what it says on its own, like, you know, overly descriptive titles. And uh, one could argue that at my verboseness, I, I live up to that title in, in more ways than one, um, uh, you know, where definitely the lead in can be much longer than the punchline. And so um, definitely also very influential in that way. I wish I knew the author to, to ascribe credit to that. Quentin, we're done. 
Thank you. This has Thank been you. a pleasure. Because I needed to know about the the um, hand percussion solo story. Obviously, we all yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was tremendous, among many other things. Uh, well, you did a tremendous job. It was a lot of fun. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Such a total and complete pleasure to chat with Quentin on these last two episodes. It was definitely one of those episodes where we got into a lot of stuff. And I also feel like we could chat again and get to so many more topics. And I look forward to doing that at a later time. It was a blast, and I hope for the best for Quentin's future. This week's rave is the first season of the Turner Classic Movies podcast, The Plot Thickens. I have, on this very show talked quite a bit about the fact that I love Turner Classic Movies. I'm a fan of old movies, of all movies, honestly, and I've enjoyed watching older movies in particular for much of my adult life, and TCM has them on commercial-free. I guess I should also point out that my wife and I are among the fossils who still have cable TV. In any case, Turner Classic Movies was a bit late to the podcast world, but when they made their opening foray in 2019, With their first season, I finally got around to it. And I should also note that binging on pop culture is not really a thing I typically do. But as I've had a little bit of vacation time here, I got through the first season of The Plot Thickens, which focuses on the life of one of the best-known film directors of the past 50-plus years or so, Peter Bogdanovich. The podcast is hosted by longtime Turner Classic Movies host Ben Mankiewicz, someone who I've thoroughly enjoyed as a host for many of the films on TCM's network. He's funny, charming, and a lot of fun, and seemed to have gotten along with Peter Bogdanovich very well through the interviews here. Bogdanovich, who is now in his early 80s, is still very lucid and a great storyteller. He remembers nearly everything about his career, which was incredibly active for about 30 years or so before it slowed down considerably. He's a good impressionist, and his stories are supplemented in the podcast with clips from his movies, interviews from those time periods, and lots of other film footage. It makes for a great listen overall. Aside from the host, the subject, and the clips, the other best part of the podcast is the supplemental interviews. Aside from his film career, of which one episode, entitled Sybil, focused specifically on his second film as director, 1971's The Last Picture Show, his most enduring and critically successful work. He's also had a large number of high-profile romances. These include one with the star of The Last Picture Show, Sybil Shepard, which broke up his marriage in real time, and one with the former Playboy playmate Dorothy Stratton, which ended when she was horrifically murdered by her ex-husband in 1980. Bogdanovich, along with Shepard, Louise Stratton, Dorothy's sister, whom Peter would eventually marry and later divorce, and his now adult children are also interviewed for the podcast and provide for a more compelling and full portrait of his life. Clips featuring those he was close to during his lifetime, including the legendary director Orson Welles, are also included. It's a compulsive, engaging, and fun listen, particularly if you're a film buff. So check out season one of The Plot Thickens wherever you get your podcasts. And that's our show. 
As always, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find all of the episodes and the show notes on the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. I'll catch you next week for the first podcast of 2022 and a continuation of our conversations with folks who presented at PASIC. We have a few more of those left and then new interviews for the coming year. Thank you all for your contributions, your kind words, and everything that helps me keep this podcast going. More to come next year. Until then.